Welcome to BIV Today, the daily business podcast from our business in Vancouver newspaper and from BIV.com. I'm Haley Wooden. Where can your money be most wisely invested? Who do you hire? Which opportunities fit best with your goals? Answer to these questions and more will be discussed at BIV's upcoming Strategic Wealth Management Panel. This is part of our ongoing Business Excellence Series. The event is taking place on November 8th at the Vancouver Club. And for more details and tickets, you can visit BIV.com slash events. Coming up later in the show, our BIV Tech Panel will break down the biggest software acquisition in history, But first, I'm going to take a deeper dive into Canada's health technology space. My next guest is the author of a report out this month called The Land of Stranded Pilots, Challenges Facing the Health Tech Innovation System Here in Canada. Charles Plant is a senior fellow at the University of Toronto's Impact Centre. He joins me on the line today. Charles, good to have you back on the program. Great to be here. Are are Canadian health tech startups the, the ones that we've left stranded here in this analogy? (laughs) <laughs> yeah, absolutely. They're stranded in pilot phase in Canada and have to get revenue out of the States. It's a really interesting problem that we face uh, commercializing these companies. I see. And just building sort of off that theme there, it, it, can we point the finger at someone who has left these pilots stranded or is it a more complex issue than that? Yeah, it's, it's actually a fairly complex issue because none of the parts of the system are working together. Hmm. They each have their own agenda. And because of that, uh, there is no agenda for anybody to actually uh, bring in new technologies, particularly ones uh, developed in Canada. So, you know, the universities have an agenda of research and teaching, not of commercializing new technologies. And hospitals have a re- have an agenda of caring for patients, not of bringing in new technologies. So the economic development side of, of you know, getting companies into markets, into the healthcare system, just it's on nobody's agenda. So what is needed then? Would some kind of a, a national strategy under which you'd have these different groups, would that sort of be some kind of a solution? Well, I know the feds are trying to develop some sort of national strategy, but I don't think the strategy is national at all. I think it's provincial because the universities are controlled provincially, the hospital and healthcare budgets are provincial, and the economic development budgets are, are provincial. So you know, if the, if the feds get into it, they don't have the levers to actually make this happen. They might be able to use their money as sort of like to bully people into doing things, but that hasn't really worked before. It has to come, I think, out of the city, out of the provinces and potentially even out of the cities. Would it be an issue then to have province to province very different strategies? Well, you know, that's a problem we've got in so many different things in Canada, but not, not just in health tech commercialization. But I don't see any way of, of developing across Canada strategy. I mean, we don't even have a single regulator for the uh, stock market. And, you know, people have been trying to put that together for years. Right. Trying to get the single program in and health tech commercialization would be just a, a bucket dream. Mm, yeah, fair enough. So where then do you think a provincial government should start? I, I think they have to start. And Quebec's done actually a really interesting thing in that uh, the economic development group in Quebec have have allocated money to the hospital system to enable them to do trials and to bring in new technology so that the money for the new technology doesn't come out of hospital budgets. It comes out of economic development budgets. Mm. And that's a different way of trying things out. And I think it's a, has, has really good potential. Now they've stopped, unfortunately, this issue of, of, an, of enabling trials and they haven't moved it any further. And that's one of the problems we have. There are lots of programs around that 
that support trials and not many that actually support the rollout of successful trials. Hmm. That's interesting because one of the questions I wanted to ask you is that in, in BC, and I'm sure this is not unique, our healthcare system is going to be facing some very serious funding, access, staffing challenges. It does now, but in the years ahead. And I, I wonder where some of the funding will come from. Innovation could certainly help with some of these challenges, but somewhere someone needs to make the decision to, to pony up funds in the first place. Yeah, and it's it's all part of a system that that is broken into pieces, and nobody's looking at it holistically, mm-hmm. because we have we all have one group that's responsible for the approval, for instance, of new technologies into the healthcare system. We have another group that's responsible for uh, determining whether the government will pay for devices for per personal use. Another group is setting the budgets for hospitals, and, uh, and then the hospitals are operating separately from that. So none of it comes together in a way that says, hey, let's address this bigger problem of long, of large, large uh, funding gaps that will occur in the future. Now, say we start to resolve some of these issues. My next question is, how important is it to have made in BC or made in Canada solutions to some of these innovation challenges? Well, you know, I suppose we could be perfectly happy in the healthcare system with solutions that are made in uh in the United States or in Europe or something like that. And and that might work for healthcare, but it doesn't work for economic development. Mm-hmm. And it doesn't work for the universities to get the research that they're doing out into the marketplace. So if you look at it as a bigger problem, we've got three separate objectives. One, getting university research into the market. Two, developing the economy with high-tech companies. And three, improving healthcare. We can improve healthcare without meeting the other two. And I think that's the problem and that's what's happening now. So it, it's a problem not just for healthcare, but for all the all the economy working together. And it's the tax dollars paid for by the growing companies that supports the research uh, done by universities through taxes and the healthcare in hospitals. So without the economic development, we're not going to have the money to pay for the buying stuff from the US in the first place. I've spoken to you before about generally funding issues that exist in Canada for technology at large. And I'm curious if you've noticed maybe any issues when it comes to funding delivery across a variety of stages, be it startup phase, growing phase, scale up, or sort of world-class phase? Does the funding pipeline, so to speak, vary at all over that, that timeline? It does. The, uh, we don't really have anybody funding or very few funding the later stage. We might have OMERS and maybe Georgian partners, but probably not in the health, as much in the health tech sector. We have very few funders in health technology to begin with. It's a very small club. And while there are some that can fund the beginning part of the um, of the funnel, uh, the, as you go further on in the funnel, they just don't have the dollars necessary to fund uh, a full-scale development of a company. And that won't happen until we have good companies. So it's a chicken and egg situation that we don't have large-scale funding because there aren't enough good companies to fund. And we don't have um, funding, you know, it's back and forth between the two. Mm-hmm. I was looking at through the report, and one thing that really jumped out to me was looking at uh, the fact that Canada has two scale-up companies, the companies between 100 million and 1 billion. The United States has 208. It's a, yeah. <laughs> they're bigger than we are, but but what maybe yeah. can we learn from our partners to the south in terms of really scaling up some health technology companies? Well, you know, they tend to deploy larger amounts of capital sooner. 
That's one of the biggest things. Now, we tend to try and be capitally efficient, and I don't believe that capital efficiency works. I think we need to allocate lots of dollars to companies in the initial phases in order for them to start on a, on a really high growth trajectory. And without that high growth trajectory, they, they don't attract the late stage capital. So that's the first thing. The second is an underappreciation of the necessity to spend money on sales and marketing, even in the health tech sector, particularly in medical devices and assistive devices and things like that. And so those are two major differences that, that start a U.S. company on a bigger, a faster trajectory. But fundamental to it is if the U.S. company wants to get sales, it doesn't have to go much farther than its own backyard. Whereas if we want to get sales, we have to get into the United States or Europe or, or Asia or something like that, which is a much more complex problem. And if we had a, a receptive a health sector willing and able to bring in new technologies, we'd have an easier job reaching that trajectory that's necessary. Do you think at the entrepreneurial level, we have a lot of individuals, we have a lot of companies that are really sincerely interested in innovating in, in health tech, or is that maybe something we need to tackle to getting people interested in addressing these challenges? Well, we certainly got a lot of people interested in addressing uh, challenges in software. Mm-hmm. So I don't think the software side of medical technology is a problem. It's when you get to devices uh, and drugs that it becomes more of a problem. And um, I'm not sure which is the problem, the fact that, that companies can't get anywhere, some people don't get into it. I know of one company that was started here at the Impact Center at U of T that in order to be successful, moved itself down to um, California and mm-hmm. has since raised $45 million. And that was its path to success because it realized it wasn't going to get the customers, it wasn't going to get the financing. So we're going to lose those opportunities. And I think that's happening on an, on an ongoing basis. I know with drug development and device development, as with software, but for the first two, especially IP is critical. Is that an issue at all, the sort of intellectual property framework we have in Canada? I haven't, I haven't focused much on the intellectual property framework, I, and I don't tend to focus on Canada's IP framework. I look at the U.S., and I'm doing a study now of, of where Canada is uh, uh, or how it's doing in the U.S. At, at filing patents. I think that if you if you want to develop a market, your market isn't going to be primarily in Canada. It's going to be in the United States because it's 10 times the size. Therefore, you've got to have intellectual property in the uh, or you have to have patents and things in the U.S. There is another side is how you get the intellectual property out of the university to be able to do the work in the first place. And that's a complex issue because in, in, in the U.S. they've solved it with um, one regulation for everyone. In Canada, there, there's everybody has a different set of rules for bringing intellectual property out. And that com- makes it more complex to develop wide-scale technologies that might need IP out of a number of different places. Interesting. Charles, as always, love having you on the show. Thanks for coming on today. Thanks. That was great. That was Charles Plant. He's a senior fellow at the University of Toronto's Impact Centre. His latest report is called The Land of Stranded Pilots, Challenges Facing the Health Tech Innovation System in Canada. The largest software acquisition in history, an employee walkout at Google, and more bad news for checkout cashiers. It has been an eventful week in tech, and our weekly tech panel joins me in studio to break it all down. With me, Ali Pordad, CEO at Progressa, and Linda Fawkes, founder and CEO of Glue Technology Society. Thank you both for joining me. Hi there. Let's talk about this Red Hat acquisition. IBM is acquiring the cloud computing company for $34 
billion dollars. Massive news for Red Hat. Shares spiked. When you look at IBM shares, they've actually gone down and have been falling for quite some time. Ali, they can both be winners, but is there a bigger winner in this deal? IBM. Definitely IBM is the big winner here. And uh, I wouldn't read too much into the stock price uh, going down. I think that's just more a function of the upcoming election. Uh, we're in a little bit of a uh, um, you know volatile sure. couple, uh, couple weeks here as uh, I think investors are preparing for a potential change in the guard. Uh, out of the U.S., but uh, you know, as it relates to this transaction, Red Hat, an amazing company that's been very obviously very re- uh, revolutionary in cl- cloud computing, going back decades, um, and it's really changed the world. I mean, IBM in this single acquisition now actually has <laughs> pretty immense control over some of its competitors because virtually all the cloud computing companies out there use Red Hat. It's now a player. Amazon, Google. It's now a player. Uh, yeah. Uh, Microsoft, they all use Red Hat um, sort of uh, open source Linux uh, cloud cloud computing software for their clouds. I wonder if the price of IBM's share uh, is more of a reflection of the analysts not understanding what IBM can do with Red Hat. Do they not see that this is a trillion dollar industry that IBM is now going to be one of the central players in? Or move to the cloud? Yeah, I mean, the stock hasn't been dropping significantly. It's only been going down a couple of dollars. I looked at it this morning because I was, I was curious. Um, so I, I actually do think it's just more a function of sort of the macro environment right now and less to do with this acquisition. Right. I think, you know, it's a $34 billion acquisition. So cash. people have to price that in. It's cash, exactly. Wow. I'm not, no, I'm not overly concerned about that because I bet you IBM is one of the, you know, companies in the in the US that's benefited from the Trump rules and probably brought a lot of cash back into into the US. So it's probably just spending cash it's always had. Um, but certainly, uh, I think over time, this is going to prove out to be a really strong acquisition. And a critical move for IBM because they were being well left out of this cloud move with Microsoft and Amazon AWS being so aggressively moving towards the cloud. What was IBM going to do if they didn't buy someone? This, 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 there was no getting in. This makes them the... I think, in my opinion, and they're the dominant, they're the dominant player because this is the software that everyone is using. Open source. It's really impressive. So it essentially entrenches IBM. They're going to be around, in theory, unless something happens for decades to come. And, unless Amazon, uh, Google, and or Microsoft develop their own sort of open source cloud-based Linux software, uh, which I don't see them doing. Uh, mm. This is this is something that you know Red Hat's been a market leader in going back decades. It, it, uh, yeah, it's possible IBM does drop the ball and they they don't um, innovate. add, yeah, they don't innovate, they don't add enough services around the Red Hat acquisition. Red Hat alone doesn't get them there, but it gets them a huge step there. They're now a player. Um, but it'll be interesting to see how they actually really maximize this deal. And I agree with Ali, it's a great buy for IBM. Super smart. We'll see if it actually gets approved. I actually don't know if right. the deal has been approved yet. No, no, It needs regulatory yet. approval. Yeah, it's only been a few days, really, and everyone's very excited. IBM known for enterprise software. I'm curious, Linda, maybe you can walk through, generally speaking, what is sort of the value proposition for clients with this acquisition? What is IBM going to then be able to offer? Well, we've got roughly 70%, 80% of um, infrastructure still on-premises, right? So on-prem, we don't have everybody in the cloud yet. There's only 20% of the infrastructure and business in the cloud. So what this offers IBM clients is a way to get into the cloud with uh, this hybrid cloud uh, model that IBM is pushing. 
Um, and it gives them a way to do that with Red Hat open source software and with the infrastructure that IBM supports their clients with. So it's a really powerful combination for IBM clients. Yeah, I think that's a very good point. I think I'm actually surprised to hear that, but I'm not surprised to hear it. I mean, if if, if truly there's that many, uh, that much of the infrastructure that's not on the cloud, yeah. it could be because IBM is a, such a major player in the sort of legacy infrastructure space. Yes. And so this is the opportunity for all of their clients now to consider the Amazons of the world, the Microsofts of the world, the Googles of the world, or the IBMs of the world through the Red Hat software. And Red Hat allows uh, IBM clients to include AWS and Azure and Microsoft technology into their move towards the cloud. So it doesn't have to be an all or nothing like it is when you're over in a proprietary environment. This should be good for the whole industry. Yeah, I think so. Interesting. Our next story is one about Google, about 200 employees at Google are expected to walk out on Thursday. And this is after a groundbreaking report from the New York Times that showed that Andy Rubin, a former executive, was paid about $90 million in severance. But at the time, Google concealed that they had investigated him for sexual misconduct allegations and that that was tied to him ultimately leaving the company. This is getting bigger by the day. But Linda, do you think that Google has handled this in the right way? Because on one hand, there are HR and privacy concerns. On the other, of course, they're trying to be very open and transparent and shift their culture. Well, here's a guy who was uh, investigated by the HR people in his company, found to be harassing an employee, um, should have been fired, uh, but had a bro chat with Larry and uh, Sergey and, and walked away with $90 million instead of being fired and absolutely released with no pay. Why did Google do that? They said they did that because they didn't want to go through a court, a trial. They didn't want this to become bad publicity. But it's a terrible message that that um, somebody who has sexually harassed an employee gets paid to leave the company. And that woman is now, where is she? She's, she's dangling in the wind. And she's the one who had to bring it to HR in the first place, which was obviously a very difficult decision. So I think this is very reflects very poorly on Google's decision making around these issues. And this isn't the first time they've done this. So it's it's not good. Does it make us question, Ali, Google's seriousness and sincerity around some of the changes they're trying to make? It's this is 2018. I think this this problem is is just too it's everywhere. And mm-hmm. it's not just Google. Like it's it's the whole, you know, it's this problem like is sort of persistent across the whole technology industry. I think many industries probably that are out there, uh, and it and it shouldn't be. It's 2018. Like we really need to make yeah. this a priority. Um, uh, you know, I I don't know. I, it's a, it's very tough. If you're Google, like I don't know how you handle this optimally. You're you're you you have to you know you have to. Uh, uh, respect the privacy of your employees, but you also have to do the right thing. And that's a, that's a, that's a very difficult balancing act publicly. Mm-hmm. And when asked, um, the CEO of Google said, all right, fine, we will, we will release the female executives from any non-disclosure agreements they might have signed around these issues so they can speak publicly about their harassment experiences. And so I don't know if any women have come through uh, forward with that statement now, but um, it is 2018. Now, Andy Rubin happened back in 2014, but and Google, if you look at the makeup of their board, that looks like they're roughly 45% female in the management ranks. You look at Apple, one out of 11 executives are female. So Apple's not doing very well. Intel and Google are doing well on mm-hmm. the almost 50-50 split. I think Microsoft's okay as well. IBM, rather yeah. embarrassing, having a female CEO and only four executives of the 21 being female, that lets the side down. I don't think that's very cool. But um, 
it's toned from the top. That's it's what it absolutely. is. Absolutely, yeah. and you and, have to yeah. you have to uh, you have to start from the from the top and uh, and set the example. And so, how is Ginny Romady getting away with that? That's a great question. But then again, what are we what are we pushing out of our universities and schools? Are there enough women graduating to help fill these voids in these roles? I. I I don't know the stats about who's coming out of university right now, and I hope that we are giving young women an opportunity and an incentive to be part of this incredibly transformative time and not feel the need to hide uh, on the front lines, because those are the jobs they're taking, right? Front lines and more creative uh, pursuits. Mm -hmm. So it's a, it's a transformative time, and I hope that we come out of it balanced, because it's a ridiculous conversation to be talking about men Agreed. versus women. Agreed. Right. And it is, Ali, to your point, it, it is a cultural issue, too. One of the things that jumped out at me is that Google CEO Canton said, well, we take this seriously. We've fired 48 people over sexual misconduct issues, sexual harassment claims for the last two years. That's firing someone every other week, essentially. <laughs> what does that say about the, the, the people who are getting exists? caught? Yeah, yeah, that's scary. Yeah, 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 very startling. Our final story is that Walmart-owned retailer Sam's Club is following in the footsteps of Amazon with a plan to eliminate cashiers and checkout lines, at least at its test location. Shoppers will instead use an app. Is this becoming table stakes? Is the the cashier position, is that going to go go the way of the dodo in the years ahead? What do you think, Allie? Yeah, I think... Uh... Under five years, it's gone entirely, is yeah, my really. guess, Linda. What do you think? I think so, yeah. Yeah. I think that Sam, I just, I read last night that Sam's Club, Walmart closed 63 Sam's Club locations in January, right. laying off or getting rid of 94 positions. So where did those people go? Right. And these cashiers, absolutely, this is over. The cashier position's over. The, the customers don't want it. One of the biggest reasons we as customers need someone to be in the store working there is because we can't find what we want. And obviously, these apps are helping take care of that pretty quickly. The retailers are already solving the problem of the electronic checkout, right? They're already yeah. going to replace the electronic checkout with AI now. Right. So what do we need? Like you're going back two steps to the individuals, <laughs> yeah. right? And now even add augmented reality. I can stand in the aisle of the store at Sam's Club or an Amazon Go shop and look in an augmented reality world what I can do with the product I'm holding, yeah. how the uh, ingredients were sourced and all of that info no human's going to give me. So right. I think those positions are gone. And do we even need humans in the loop other than those people who are in there shopping and buying stuff. To that point, do you think it'll change your shopping habits? Because part of this too, the app will suggest items that you may need based on, I guess, your repeat purchases. I think it will. I think, uh, but I think that's that's potentially beneficial for society. Uh, as Linda, Linda gave a great example of it, right? You buy, uh, you know, you buy products that maybe meet your ethical standards. You might you buy products that meet your health standards. Mm. Um, so all of that information will be at the consumer's fingertips and. I think sets a consumer up to succeed. And it looks like with the app that Sam's Club is launching alongside this new test location, is it will have a smart shopping list. So you'll be able to see what you bought last time you were there. So if you're you're not going to double up on the persimmons or whatever, um, you're going to buy what you need, and it can suggest new products based on your health goals or your shopping goals or your budget. So you will think everywhere, pretty well everywhere in five years. Does that mean in Canada too, Loblaw, Save on Foods, they're going to make the technological investment and go this way too? Amazon Go started it. Walmart was watching very carefully to see yeah. how would the technology unfold? What did they need to buy technology-wise to make this happen? And they, I, they reacted, Walmart reacted much faster than I thought they would. Yeah, Canada will be slower as a country to adopt all of this technology. But within a decade, I think you can assume 
you know, we'll be there. It'll come here with Whole Foods and Amazon. Uh, oh, well, yeah, Amazon. Yeah, Whole Foods <laughs> will probably be uh, yeah. one of the first yeah. for sure. First. Yeah. Great. Uh, Ali, Linda, thank you both for joining me. Thank you. Thank you. That's Linda Focus, founder and CEO at Glue Technology Society, and Ali Pordad, CEO of Progressa. And that's it for our show. Thanks for listening to BIV Today. You can subscribe to us on iTunes and Stitcher. Please share our show on social media and listen to episodes and read more business news over at BIV.com. Thanks again for listening.